Great. So if you've, if you've got a Bible, um, you might want to open it up to chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel. We're going to read a little passage from there, starting at verse 57. Um, it's, um, th- th- what's happening here is some people are coming a lot up to Jesus as he's walking along the road. It says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, it's Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But, um, but, he replied, but Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I don't know if you've ever um, set out on a journey, maybe or started a hobby or a project, and you failed to factor in the costs of the whole thing, um, like a hobby that, that, that turned out to be really expensive. Any, any road cyclists? in the room, for example. You know what this is about. Because do you remember, when you took up road cycling, some of you, you said to your spouse, I just need, you know, like a basic road bike, that's the only outlay, and then after that, no costs associated. It was a really cheap hobby. And you started out as this guy, but your spouses will tell us, won't you, that you ended up as this guy, didn't you? (laughs) Or do you remember, like parents, you, 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 do you remember, like, there are certain toys that, um, you know, like once you bought the first one, you realize you've committed to something significant, like Warhammer. That first Warhammer figurine turned out to be an expensive purchase, didn't it? Or young parents, this is a bit of a warning for you, Sylvanian families. <laughs> Basically, like, Sylvanian families send your kids to uni. It's a decision that that's roughly the same cost. There are loads of these things. The puppy that you bought in lockdown. Um, the 15-minute DIY project where seven hours later you're on checker trade looking for an emergency plumber, or the marathon that you applied for when the only thing you'd run before was a bath. We've all embarked on journeys that cost us more than we bargained for. And the passage, the sort of like the sense of this passage seems to be Jesus is saying, that's what choosing to be a disciple is like. It comes at great cost. And, um, you know, you might have, you know, you might have, as Jesus was saying these things, you might have thought, wow, he said, this sounds really challenging. Like, was he really expecting that guy to miss his dad's funeral? And it might seem especially sort of like surprising in a church like this, because, you know, as you know, everything that we do here, we're always trying to make it easy for people to come towards Jesus, aren't we? Like, from the way we do Sundays to other events, you know, the way we, we leave the Why Jesus, just by the exit door, just pick one up as you go. We want to make it as easy as possible. Take the Alpha course, for example. You know, Alpha, um, we ha- they, they have this phrase that we use. There's no cost, no pressure, and if you don't want to come back after the first week, there is no follow-up. So can you, you can imagine, if you, if you had a friend to long to Alpha, and they said, a bit like in this passage, oh, yeah, I'd love to come, but I'm going to have to miss the first week because it's my dad's funeral. You wouldn't go, well, do you know what? Just forget it then, would you? You wouldn't say, let the dead bury their own dead. You wouldn't say that. So, so which is it? Do we, do we want to make it easy for people to come to follow Jesus? Or do we want to be clear and upfront about the cost of following Jesus? The answer, I think, is yes. We want to do both of those things. Because if you read the Gospels, 
you see that actually Jesus was about both. You see Jesus, on one hand, he's, he's, he's reaching out to people on the fringe. He's, he's reaching out to the sinners, to the outcasts, to the tax collectors, the prostitutes. And the invitation that Jesus gave was, come, all who are thirsty, come to me. And that invitation was and it is open to all, every day, every moment of every day, right up until the hour when he returns. But there were other times where Jesus was actually, you know, pretty clear about the cost of following him, about the cost of his own mission and also the cost that it, that it requires to follow him. And uh, we just read a passage like that, but similarly, in chapter 9 of Luke, um, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. The decision to follow Jesus, in a sense, it costs us nothing. We can't pay him anything to be his disciple because he paid it all. But in another sense, the decision to follow Jesus costs us everything because it requires us to forsake all else for his plans and purposes for our lives. Like we were just singing, love so amazing, so divine, it requires my, my life, my soul, my all. I recently heard a really inspiring example of somebody who embraced this. Um, a, a guy called Wang Ming Dao. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but he was a Chinese pastor who was put um, in prison by the communist government back in the 1950s for speaking out about Jesus. And his wife was put in prison too. And after about a year, he was so overwhelmed by grief and concerned for his wife that he, he, you know, he signed this false confession renouncing his faith and admitting false crimes, um, and he was released. And, but as soon as he and his wife were released, he felt regret, and he felt conviction that he'd renounced Jesus. And so he, he went back. He went back to the authorities. He tore up his confession, knowing that he would be sent back to prison, knowing that he'd be able, no longer able to, to preach and teach, and knowing that he wouldn't see his wife. And yet, in prison, he found what he would describe as a peace. He, he described those years later as his honeymoon with Jesus. Um, and he found a freedom and even a purpose. Incredibly, despite being put in solitary confinement, he found that he was able to communicate with other prisoners through the drainage pipes in the toilet. And so he literally began preaching into the toilet. And over a period of seven years in prison, he led 96 of his inmates to faith in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And the thing is, you know, he had a, he had a challenging life, didn't he? There's no denying it. A radically challenging life. But more than that, he had a radical kingdom purpose for his life. That's what Jesus had for him. In fact, that's what Jesus has for all of his disciples. He has a purpose for, for, for your life. We may not need to go to prison to find that purpose, but we do need to be able to be willing to accept the cost and the challenge. We need to be able to choose, for example, Jesus over comfort. Let's look at this passage again. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man, that's talking about himself, has no place to lay his head. It's likely that this, this, this would-be follower of Jesus, like most Jewish people at the time, was waiting for the Messiah, waiting for God's anointed one that God was going to send to establish his kingdom. And that picture carried with it um, expectations. 
expectations of wealth and uh, security and power, power. So this guy, you know, he got bling and prestige and power in his eyes. And so Jesus had to really prick his bubble because that wasn't the deal. You know, if you read the Gospels, it's, it's really clear. Jesus did not travel business class. It wasn't how he rolled. He was reliant on the hospitality and the support of people around him. A chapter before in Luke, actually, Luke lists some of Jesus' friends, um, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Chusa, Susanna, um, and some other unnamed women before explaining chapter 8, verse 3. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Jesus relied on hospitality. He relied on eating in other people's houses. And he instructed his disciples when he sent them out to do the same. It's also clear that Jesus spent a pretty good amount of time living outside without hospitality at times, under canvas. And so, you know, it's a costly, challenging, uncomfortable journey. There are some people that teach... Um, that if you follow Jesus faithfully, you might heard this kind of thing, you know, and you're generous, then you are guaranteed wealth, health, and prosperity in this life. You might have heard that phrase, prosperity gospel. I think maybe this bit must have just fell out of their Bible because it's clear, you know, the implication of this picture is that Jesus surrendered his personal comfort for the sake of his mission, and he expects us as his followers to be ready to do the same, to embrace discomfort at times. And of course, this is, a, this is a, a point where, you know, for those of us living in the UK in 2022, we start to shift in our seats a little bit because the reality is that most of us, we live in comfort. You know, just thinking about, certainly compared to the people in the ancient world, we have electricity. I mean, it costs loads of money, but that's another story. We have water, we have Wi-Fi, and even compared to, you know, people in the world today, according to the World Health Organization and UNICEF, they did a study a couple of years ago, if you have access to safe drinking water, you're better off than two billion people on this planet. And I don't say that to sort of like try and stir up any guilt about that, because I don't think this passage is necessarily saying that wealth is a bad thing. Um, you know, remember, Jesus relied on people of means to support his ministry. And the early church in Acts, it was the same. And personally, I would say that some of the most radical, all-out, generous Christians I know have money and have cars and, and, and houses. It's, it's okay to have those things. But I think what this passage is pointing out to us is that if you are journeying with Jesus, we should expect and be willing to experience discomfort along the way. Um, it reminds me of um, back during the very first meetings of, of, in the life of this church, um, the first vision and values talks in 1996, John used the, this analogy, this picture of a bus to describe the journey that we're on as a church. You can listen to the recording of this on the way, by the way, on the line, online on the vision page of our website. And he explains this journey, it's not going to be like, um, you know, if it's a bus, it's not going to be a, like a co comfy, luxury coach. Um, he said it'll probably be more challenging, more uncomfortable, a bit cramped at times. It's going to be less predictable, perhaps, than velour headrests. Now, in 2022, velour headrests are no longer the benchmark for what defines <laughs> luxury travel. But you get the idea. The vision of a church where people would be willing to embrace the discomfort of the kingdom journey. And that has been what it's been like over the years. That's how it's panned out. Like, even in the last few years, we have faced challenges together. I mean, the pandemic 
uh, lockdown, Zoom, adding all those extra services afterwards, filling all the rotors, joining all the teams. And over the years as well, we've, ha- we've embraced together the cost of, of, of saying goodbye to friends as we've planted churches. That's been a costly journey. I remember when the Manchester Vineyard planted, it felt like we were losing staff quicker than Boris Johnson. <laughs> and of course, um, then the cost of the building campaigns. Um, I mean, like this, this building and the buildings we have, the roof above us, the seat that you're sat on, cost church members past and present some serious discomfort in the wallet region. People emptied their savings, sacrificed holidays, shaved budgets. I I heard some people even remortgaged their homes. And most incredibly of all, some students went without beer. The cost, (laughs) the cost. They were costly times, but they were so fruitful. And now, of course, we're in a position as a church where we have these wonderful resources, comfy seats, amazing facilities. So does that mean we can now, oh, yeah, we've, re- we've reached the point where we can finally relax and enjoy a comfortable journey from here on in? Is that what it means? No, of course it doesn't. You're so resounding with your no there. <laughs> Discomfort might change. And it might look different as the journey unfolds, but it's just part of the kingdom journey. It's part of the deal. And so here's a question. If your life does feel comfortable right now, and of course it may not for everybody, is there some discomfort that God might be inviting you to embrace? You know, is he perhaps inviting you towards a financial decision that's going to pinch? You know, being generous in a way where where you really start to feel it, where you have to go without something that you enjoy. You know, an inspiring example that jumps to my mind is I can think of a number of people in the church who have used wealth that they've got to provide affordable housing for friends or even strangers who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it. I think that is an inspiring kingdom decision because they could, of course, be using that wealth, you know, to feather their own nest or or upgrade to a bigger house themselves. And, you know, not everybody has the resources to do something like that. But could you, I don't know, could you um, sponsor a child um, with, with Love the One in India? Or could you cancel a subscription that you enjoy and use that money to bless somebody instead each month? It might be starting or changing what you give financially to the church. For others of you, um, the discomfort that God might be inviting you to embrace might involve costly hospitality. Um, again, I think, you know, my mind immediately goes to those in the church who have, in recent months, gone on that journey of, of making their home available um, for refugees. And again, not everybody's necessarily got the, you know, like, the, the, the circumstances to be able to do that. Um, but I love the way others have found creative ways of getting involved in that. For example, like, in befriending. I heard about um, Liam, for example. Earlier this year, he was sharing how the team had connected him with a young man who was forced to flee from Iran um, with no friends or family due to his faith. And Liam said um, he was unable to work in the UK, a victim of a recent racially motivated assault. He spent most days alone in his apartment. I meet with him around once a fortnight, often for a walk or a coffee, and getting to know him has been a privilege. It's been a blessing to see God working through me in answering his prayers for companionship, and I have been inspired by the courage he has shown in sacrificing everything for his faith in Jesus. Wouldn't you want to be part of something like that? When's the last time that you showed hospitality to somebody who can't return it to you? It could be like an elderly person or somebody who's lonely. 
um, in the form of a meal or even just a coffee and a chat. Maybe God's inviting you to explore fostering or adoption or providing respite care for kids in care. Where is it that God's inviting you to embrace a bit of kingdom discomfort? That's the first question. Second point, following Jesus involves choosing loyalty to Jesus above everyone else. Um, Jesus said to another man, um, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So this is a challenging bit, isn't it? Is Jesus really telling this guy to skip his dad's funeral? So that's what's going on. Well, if you look up what different sort of Bible scholars have to say about this passage, there's a range of different views. Some people think, no, Jesus is just sort of like, it's just hyperbole. Others think, actually, yeah. You know, at this point in his life, at this point in his journey, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to, to face death on a cross. There was an urgency to that mission that meant that it couldn't wait for anything, not even the most you know, urgent thing that you could possibly imagine, your parents' funeral. Others see it differently. They suggest that, um, in that cultural context of the day, um, that phrase, bury my father, um, wasn't necessarily talking about the funeral itself, but, but talking about the whole Jewish cultural process of burial and mourning, which took place over a whole year. Um, and other people actually suggest that even that phrase, bury my father, it might even be describing really the cultural expectation on a good son uh, to, to, to look after your father into his old age and then bury him when he does eventually die. And so, in other words, maybe this guy wasn't necessarily hesitant to follow Jesus because he was in grief and mourning. He was hesitant to follow Jesus because of the family and the cultural expectations on him at the time. And personally, I don't know which of these interpretations is right, but I would kind of lean more towards those ones personally because elsewhere, when you look at Jesus, that's what Jesus... Like Jesus... Um, he had a great deal of compassion for people who were mourning um, and people in the midst of grief. He raised the dead widow's son to life. He placed a high value on family. We see him uh, when he was on the cross um, um, uniting Mary with his son John in this kind of surrogate um, mother-son um, relationship. And so he was a compassionate person. I don't think personally this passage is saying that Jesus means you have to automatically reject your family, therefore, or show any disdain towards them. But I think Jesus is stressing that as disciples of him, we must be ready to choose him as the highest level authority in our lives, the highest level of accountability in our lives, uh, which, you know, in that culture would have been your parents otherwise. And so when we consider what this means um, for us today, I think, um, you know, in my mind immediately jumps immediately to those who've had to follow Jesus or chosen to follow Jesus coming from other cultures or other faiths and where Christianity is not tolerated. I think, for example, of many of the Farsi-speaking members of our church, who have, you know, for whom following Jesus has meant giving up so much of their, of their life. Or I think of the stories of those who've been part of the Mandarin community here, for whom following Jesus in some cases has meant risking their, their jobs or their position in their community if the news gets out that they've become a Christian. And we should be thankful, many others of us should be thankful that we're not required to forsake relationships with family for the sake of Jesus in quite the same way. But the reality is we do face situations still where our loyalties might feel divided. And you might have experienced that, you know, even this week. You know, because Jesus 
Jesus might not have the same career path for you as the one your dad has in mind for you. That was certainly true of me. And 15 years into it, it still comes up every single Christmas. Perhaps, you know, you'll feel, you'll feel drawn to a line of work, perhaps working for a non-profit organisation where you're going to make use of your gifts and your skills um, for a cause that lines up with God's kingdom, but all of your family expect you to do something far better paid than that. Or maybe you're dating somebody and you're talking about marriage, but your parents and everybody um, is, is telling you, oh, it makes far more financial and common sense to just move in together first. Or your family are asking, they're curious, and they're asking you questions about this new faith of yours. And they're saying, you know, I've heard that some Christians, like, they believe this. Or they, you know, they don't agree with that. Now, surely tell me you don't believe any of that, do you? And all of a sudden, you feel like caught between a rock and a hard place. And just to be clear, these scenarios, I'm not trying to describe, you know, I'm not trying to encourage everybody to just go looking for a fight with your family, because who needs another confrontation with your family? But... But being a disciple will require us to hold fast to our convictions, even with those that we least want to disappoint. And that's hard, but Jesus is clear. He says, nobody, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Final point, choose Jesus' kingdom for your future. Now, if you read the Gospels, you know that Jesus, he loved a good agricultural analogy, like the one about the plough here. Um, at the time, they went down a storm. Um, but, uh, but if I was just to ask how many of us here have ploughed a field? Exactly. So I asked a friend just to sort of help, uh, who has ploughed a field, if he had any insights here. And he said to me, ploughing is a job that requires you to keep your focus on what's in front. You know, we've all seen fields with all those furrows in nice, neat lines. And he says, you know, putting that plough in that furrow is not the path of least resistance. There are rocks, there are bumps, where the plough is constantly trying to bump out of the furrow. And you can imagine, if you were trying to do that, and then you're distracted looking behind you, by the time you get to the other side of the field, you're going to be, like, all over the place, aren't you? I think Jesus wants to warn us, following him is going to require that same single-minded focus. It will be challenging, costly, uncomfortable at times. There will be distractions over our shoulder. Um, and I remember that's, that has been my experience, and it continues to be my experience today. But I remember when I first became a Christian, I got to this point in the journey, and you might empathize with this, where I had two sets of friends. I had my Christian friends, and I had my like, non-Christian friends. And my Christian friends liked going to church. My non-Christian friends liked going to the pub. And I remember I got to a point in my journey where I had to you know, decide, are Sunday mornings going to be about church or hangovers? And I had to make a decision. Now, that didn't mean that I just cut those friends off completely from my life. They're still some of my best friends today. But I had to make a choice to look forward. Similarly, I remember roughly at the same sort of time, I remember my whole attitude and outlook to sex and women had been formed, you know, as a kid in the playground and then in the pub and then through watching um, Channel 4 on Friday nights late, programmes like The Word, very enlightening at the time. And I remember, I'm, I have to make a choice. Am I going to continue to go forward with that lens of what, what sex is all about or am I going to have to pick up this lens that some of my Christian friends have? And it was a decision to move forwards. And there were relationships, times where God made it really clear to me you know, that person in your life, they're not going to help you to actually move forward with me. You're going to have to make a choice. Moments where I had to choose what comes first in my life. 
And I would be lying if I said I didn't take a few glances back along the way. But I can say that looking back, those decisions where I eventually managed to put Jesus first, keep my hand on the plough, keep my eyes forward, turned out to be some of the best decisions I've ever made. And it might be that you're here facing a decision a bit like that today. You know, perhaps there's something over your shoulder that you're tempted to look back to. It might be, it might be your old set of friends and what they're all about. Um, it might be a relationship with somebody that you know is not going to help you with your faith. It might be some comfort that you're tempted and you keep looking back to, whether it's drink or, or pornography or food or drugs or excessive exercise. It might be another religion or some form of spirituality that you think that somehow it could be compatible with Christianity as a little bolt-on. It might simply be the lure of a comfortable, predictable life. Whatever it is, I want to say that the decision that you make right now in this moment has implications for where you end up on the other side of the field. So really, is it worth taking your hand off the plough for? Really, is it worth taking your eye of what lies ahead. Because as followers of, of Jesus, the thing that's on the horizon, the future that we see is the kingdom of God. God in all of his fullness, the age to come when he returns, and then we will experience peace and joy and abundance and our reward and an eternity in his presence. But between here and then, there is a, a, a field of challenge that we have to plough through. And so we have to fix our eyes, not what is seen in this time, but what is unseen, and pursue that with perseverance. We need to fix our eyes forward and not look back.